0: And now, and coming to you live from the grocery Room, high above the Goode Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strine and Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast. I think
1: that, 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 that was Jonathan trying to sound elevated and far away as though you were on the roof of the building, I suppose. Was that what? No, no that was me trying to, like, r- the rest of the, the
0: game. For some reason, the gain on my microphone is way up. Ah, and so okay. it's brick walling like crazy. And I'm just trying to deal with that. Well, let me
1: start out. Let me start out by reminding our listeners that uh, they, there's only what a, a little over a week for Hugo voting, and we should remind like that. People of Hugo, Hugo nominations. I should. And one of the things that I suspect other people have done, which is what, in fact, I have done, I have to get back on that. When the ballot first opened, I jumped on the ballot and mm-hmm. and nominated four or five things that I knew was going I was going to want to nominate because I yes. thought. I want to get this done. I don't want to forget to ever do it, and I've never gone back and filled in the rest of the ballot. Um, yeah. And I suspect people who have done that um, may forget that they haven't actually filled out the whole ballot; that they've only filled out a partial ballot. And the other thing, the other thing which is intimidating, especially to first-time voters, of which there might be a few, is there are categories that you look at and think, "I have no knowledge about this at all," and you just skip them. You don't have to. Which is for it. fine. Yeah. yeah. You really. I mean, the the
0: we've talked about the Hugo's way too much, but assuming that you're new welcome and you think that we have anything to add to the subject surprising, we could certainly say you don't only have to vote for what you read and liked or watched and liked or experienced and liked. You don't have to uh, vote for anything else. You can leave every category other than say off the top of my head, best fan cast or best editor short form empty. And really you only need one nominee in each category, right, Gary?
1: That's absolutely true. Uh, and sometimes, it takes seconds to vote for the Hugos. Somebody, uh, one of our listeners asked us, could we explain the Hugo voting system? To which my answer is no, I can't. I mean, I think <laughs> I could. Uh, I know people who can. Uh, most of the people I know who can explain it in detail are people who you don't want to listen to that much detail from.
0: At the very simplest way of looking at the preferential voting system, Gary, which is in use in Australia for all its of elections, yes, what remember. you do is you get people's preferences and then you count the preferences. And as you go through the preferential system, you drop off the, the, the uh, person who's getting the least num- uh, number of preferences. And at the end of the day, what you get is the on average most popular outcome. That's the principle behind it. The counting you go go around about, but that's really what it is. So the idea is that, You're flattening out a little bit of um, sort of really uh, extreme popularity unless the the first-past-the-post winner is so popular that they automatically get far more than 50% of the vote. Then they just win, and then you go through and count the runners-up, and that does happen. What's fascinating for someone who cares about it and boring to everybody else is that if you watch the Hugo process closely and you follow nominations to... Um, nominations to votes. What you see is that there's a huge difference between who makes the ballot and then how the ballot is voted upon. Oh, right. Uh, it's it's a small subpopulation of uh, WorldCon members who nominate for the Hugo's. You can get on the Hugo ballot with forty nominating votes. Um,
1: but well, then you get on, depending on your category as well. Depending on the model. category,
0: yes. And then you can go on and have several thousand people voting in the main event. So you know. It, 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 it's, it's very interesting. I mean, uh, the the Street podcast has been first in nominations and last in votes several times. You know, just because of that's the way it goes. Oh yeah, exactly. You know? And and that, that you know that's true in other categories. But yes, ShyCon will close the voting. I believe on the fifteenth of March. They should have sent countless emails to everybody. I'm sure they have mm-hmm. encouraging them to to nominate. I would encourage you to nominate as much as I would encourage you to nominate the Coot Street Podcast, and me for Best Editor Short Form, really I would mostly encourage you to uh, vote for stuff that you genuinely you know, like. Don't feel pressured to vote for things that seem popular or cool or to be to things that are of the moment. Just nominate for things that you care about yourself.
1: I think another uh, corollary to that is that there may be a favorite novel that you had or a favorite story or a favorite podcast. Uh, which you think nobody else liked and you think it's a complete wasted vote, it's not necessarily a wasted vote. Sometimes things show up on these ballots by surprise, where without getting a lot of buzz, a lot of discussion, uh, they just appeal to, to to many, many readers. And Occasionally, uh, we've all seen something that appeared on the Hugo ballot. that was a surprise to everybody, simply because it had developed its own readership, which only becomes apparent after uh, maybe six or eight months' uh, in circulation
0: i I think that's true i mean i do think anything published early in the publishing year in january february is usually at a disadvantage with the hugo's because they're let you know they've fallen out of people's minds um but you know say a book like um uh, p jelly clark's novel um that is a book i'd expect to see on the hugo ballot it was published fairly early in the year i genuinely think and we've gone through all this in the recommended reading yeah, we've done uh, desolation called peace by Arkady Martin, who appeared, which appeared early in the year,
1: deserves to me to be on the Hugo ballot. But that's going to be up to everybody to you know decide themselves. Well, you can make the argument that books published at the end of the year have the same problem that not enough people have gotten to them yet.
0: True, and I, I am always surprised when people get annoyed when you say, "Well, I don't you know say read enough in this category. I just don't nominate." And they think, oh, well, you should, you should go out and educate yourself and all that kind of thing. And I think if you're going to vote or nominate, that kind of makes sense. But for example, I rarely ever nominate or vote in the media category. I don't disagree with them. I just quite often haven't seen enough of them to really have formed
1: an opinion. That's generally true of my, in addition to which, that strikes me as the categories that gets very large numbers of votes and probably Mm -hmm. have less effect on the works themselves or on the creation. In other words, uh, by and large, I don't think, I, I, I may be completely wrong about Denis Villeneuve. Maybe he really follows the Hugos and really wants one for Dune, but I have a feeling nothing that the Hugo voters do is going to affect Dune
0: too. You know, maybe, although sometimes what you will find isn't so much that Denis Villeneuve cares at all about getting a Hugo, but that the production company would very, very much like to see little bits of affirmation as the, uh, the, you know, the movie proceeds, and they're aware because of the last decade or two of Hugo's because, you know, people cared when Game of Thrones won Hugo's, that kind of uh-huh. thing. So a, a small amount of cachet, or at least a, a, some kind of affirmation. But, yeah, I'm sure it's, it's a footnote. I mean, Denis Villeneuve wanted to be up for Best Director at the, the Academy Awards, not, you know, Best oh, Dramatic yeah. Feature long form at the Hugo's. Well, and I should also say this week they did the Centre uh, Program surveys from ShyCon. And um, asked if people would be on the on the panels, and um, I've certainly said I plan. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: I plan. He laughs. I plan to be in Chicago
1: at Chicon in September and on panels. I hope. I hope you will. Of course, I'm definitely going to be here because it's a mile away.
0: Um, <laughs> I, I must say that would be the ultimate f you wouldn't it like you know look i can see the you see it from my window but i still can't be bothered going well
1: that that would be actually um and and, and the, the the other the other thing the other nightmare would be going and finding out that you're really the only one that everybody knows. and it's it's anyway. i'm sure though i'm sure they'll want you on the program gary i'm sure anyway we actually had topics we thought of topics we saw uh, nobody has asked us for topics Sometimes nope. people have asked us for topics. Uh, so we'll look a little bit at, at, at some of the news this week and some of the questions about reading and some of the sure, questions sure. about fantasy. What's the big news in the past week in terms of very, very famous and rich authors? <laughs> well, actually, let's, let, let's parse this. The big news of the week,
0: obviously, if you've been following along at home, is that Brandon Sanderson, uh, about three days ago, four days ago, launched a Kickstarter for four novels that he had written during the pandemic apparently typically uh, mr sanderson spends three months or more on the on the road traveling promoting his books and for the last two years he has not done that and he used all that time to write actually five extra novels in addition to meeting all of his commitments to his existing publishers and he decided to put that upon a Kickstarter along with a whole bunch of rewards and other kind of nonsense um, and you know they're supposed to be secret novels you don't know what they're about all that kind of and as of this moment I'll convert it into US dollars for the, you know, the people playing along in, in the United States it sits at 24 million dollars of the requested million dollar minimum with hundred and one thousand people backing it Wow. And there has been an uproar about this. It is the number one most fun Kickstarter of all time. And it's interesting because there was no preliminary to it. It's not been handled like a lot of other Kickstarters where you do promote it up in advance. It's also not promoted like a lot of Kickstarters because it's a whole bunch of stuff and you have to buy all of it, you know. You can't buy one novel, you have to buy all four. And it's interesting as well because it there's a very, very high buy-in level to this i mean people are spending on average about 270 us dollars to be part of this which is quite a lot of money even for four books especially when you consider that the the base buy-in level is buy four ebooks for 40 bucks and the truth is four ebooks for 40 bucks is pretty average there's nothing remarkable at that as a yeah yeah yeah, so my four ebooks from brandon sanderson each guaranteed to be a novel of a hundred thousand words or more not published elsewhere and people have gone nuts in the community there's been a lot of uproar can't believe this that i mean the the first thing is what a shock how could this have happened i don't think when you look at it actually it is a shock but i'll come back to that the second is oh my god why does it have to be this guy he Mm. is a middle american white mormon male in his late 40s with all that comes with being a middle american white mormon in, in, you know, in the 40s there's been a lot of homophobic posting and that kind of thing around mm. him which is an issue and a lot of people wishing that there was either them as writers or um people whose work they imagined i mean wouldn't it be better if it was Nora jemison say who was receiving this kind of accolade mm. or this kind of success <clears throat> now first of all it, it overlooks a bunch of things the current 24 million dollars which if you this if this Kickstarter keeps going at the rate it is, which I don't think it will. It would, it'll, it'll top out at about one hundred and thirty million dollars.
1: It's not going to go that far, I don't think.
0: But it could very well get to about sixty million US dollars. It
1: could, it could, yes.
0: Now you, you, you and which means at current means, you're going to get about two hundred thousand, two hundred forty thousand backers. So you ask yourself, how is this shocking and surprising? Well, first of all, Brandon Sanderson's been writing at a, at a very successful commercial level for about fifteen years or more, right? He's been a New York Times bestseller for a long time. He's directly connected to one of the most successful franchises of all time, Wheel of Time, which is at a which is at a peak right now with its television series and all this kind of thing. And he's also worked very, very hard to build up a direct relationship with his readership. You know, he has a YouTube channel on which he where he talks regularly to people, and he's got 340,000 subscribers to that channel with videos on it with a mil- you know, millions of views. He's been not self published not so he's been publishing deluxe editions of his own books. Do you know Gary what the second most successful literary Kickstarter of all time is? I have no idea. Let me tell you because it's relevant. In two- in 2020, let's say approximately 2 years ago, uh Brandon Sanderson launched a Kickstarter for the limited for the deluxe edition of the fourth uh book in his st- Stormlight archive series i think it was you could buy a leather-bound it's which is big books so that comes in two volumes leather bound first volume signed Well, the, the average purchase price was about 150 bucks the um the um kickstarter earned six and a half million dollars was backed by thirty thousand people right so For a reprint of a book that was already 10 years old, that people already had copies of, there were 30,000 people willing to buy it. And the critical thing as well, not only were there 30,000 people willing to buy it then for this reprint, it was the fourth book in a series that he'd already been uh, putting out leather-bound editions of as well, which suggests that those 30,000 people had bought the preceding three books as well. So you've got a guy who's got his own publication and fulfillment system that he's built up over a period of time. He's employing staff. and He refers to my team. I have no idea how many there are, but my guess is there are 10 or more people that he's employing full-time to, to do this, and he's got a, a readership who plainly are strongly connected with him and willing to invest in their time and money in new work from him, and he delivers it quickly, and I took a glance at one of his newsletters. Every year, he does a summary newsletter of the many projects. Mm-hmm. The you know, the merchandising, the, f- the, the audio books and all blah, blah, blah. He's got his own audiobook company to produce an mm. audiobook. So there's this guy who's more like a small industry. And if you think about it, going from 30,000 of those 340,000 YouTube subscribers paying 150 bucks each for a, a, an old reprint to 100,000 people paying an average of 300 bucks for four brand new novels and other things, it's not as big a surprise when you think about it from that
1: angle. Almost nobody else could do this right i think truthfully yeah I, and i think a lot of people wouldn't want to uh, partly because as you mentioned he essentially has his media empire in place he's not starting up a publishing company after he's got the money he's got the publishing company in place he's got you're probably right the employees are in place and he has a particular kind of relationship with his readers there are yeah. more popular writers out there i suspect i mean uh, one of the other Writers who probably one of a handful of other writers who probably could do something like this is James Patterson. James Patterson is the only novelist ever to have Dolly Parton record an album to go along with the new novel, uh, which and is J- James, also James Patterson of a has
0: no motivation whatsoever to do it.
1: Right? right exactly. I, I could probably name you three or four people. I think
0: people I think who could do this mm-hmm. now. Maybe in future this could change. And the one thing I would actually acknowledge when it comes to a, the issue of diversity. One of the problems in the world is that it's hard for anybody who's not white and middle class and whatever else to get to the situation where they could maybe do this because of all of the barriers to entry. And that's a really, really legitimate criticism of this situation. Mm-hmm. There are barriers that discourage and prevent people having access to this kind of situation so they could potentially build to this. But then there's the issue of building. But I mean, okay, could George R. R. Martin do it? George R. R. Martin could do it if he finished He's a song of ice and fire and then wrote more because otherwise people would come after him with, you know, uh, with, with, with gun and camera, uh, the same for Patrick Rothfuss, if he didn't finish his series first. So that rules them out. Stephen King and James Patterson, both of whom are in their seventies have no desire to do something. You know, Mm -hmm. I, I can imagine a few people, but they would need to in their own way actually get to where he is. I mean, I've no doubt, but first of all, you know, there will be a fulfillment company involved to manage this as well. Yeah. And all yeah. I mean, think about it. We're talking about he's going to, next year, he will, his people will print more than 100,000 copies per volume of four separate books, all of being shipped to 100,000 different de, de, uh, destinations. This, this you know, current, you know, 20 to $24 million, I would
1: imagine 80% of it won't go to Brandon Sanderson at all. And then you look at well, it, it's that much more than it. And that's the other argument I've seen. I mean, several people writing about this appointed. They've looked at, at at gigantic advances in the back in the past, and eliminating things like the Obamas. One figure I've seen cited more than once is Ken Follett getting a fifty million dollar advance for a trilogy, uh, which comes out to, uh, which which is all he has to do is write. He doesn't he doesn't have to do any of the rest. Of he doesn't have to hire people. He doesn't have to get a, a publisher. So the one question is, why does Sanderson want to do this? Why doesn't he just Get huge million dollar advances. It's not as though he needs the money. Um, so there, there's that, and I think you've explained that to some extent. He has a relationship with with his readers, with his followers, with his collectors that is very important to him, and that from everything I've heard, he treats with great respect and absolutely uh, and, and, and delivers on, on what he promises. The mm-hmm. sense I get, and I don't know, underst- I don't understand enough about Kickstarter to know if there's any validity to this, is the sense of being aggrieved as though somehow his doing this is punishing other authors. Other authors in some way may suffer uh because he's doing this. That's one thing. The other thing I think has to do simply with what we all thought Kickstarter was, and I think it's easy to confuse something like Kickstarter with something like Patreon. Back at the beginning, I thought Kickstarter was a way of for small entrepreneurs to get a new enterprise off the ground. It's for the little people. It's it's kind of like I don't know, American Idol or something. You get a Kickstarter and maybe you'll make millions of dollars and your, your mop will suddenly uh, be in every store in, in, in the world. Uh, I think the idea that somebody who's already hugely successful, that who could have gotten millions of dollars from publishers uh, is instead taking millions of dollars directly from, uh, from his followers. You mentioned N.K. Jemisin. My guess is that the people who are supporting Brandon Sanderson are probably not N.K. Jemisin readers by and large.
0: No, but I mean, the model for Nora Jemison, if she were at all interested in following it, would be there. I think she's got, you know, she's a New York Times bestseller. She probably has a core audience welded on already, make, even that's it's half the size of Sanderson, say, mm-hmm. you know. But I mean, look as well at what Sanderson is doing. Four novels, three in an existing series that's popular, right? Mm-hmm. Uh None of all, all written on top of his existing commitments. So he's written other novels at the same time that are going yeah, to, and he's, he's,
1: he's, he's delivering novels to his to I guess Tor is one of his publishers. He's delivering yes. those as per contract. You betcha,
0: absolutely. So what you'd have to do would have be able to write very prolifically, very fast. Now you look at say Nora jemison She writes quite quickly. I she well. She can certainly do, usually get a novel a year out or has for the past chunk of time. I think she's currently also writing some television maybe, I, th- I think. I think so. So that's probably taking her time. So she there's, she might be able to write more, and then she would have to be wanting to go into the, the whole drama of doing this kind of thing and building that profile. And the, the big thing with Sanderson that makes a difference and is harder is he starts by pulling in those 340,000 YouTube you know, subscribers and the people who listen to this and who do that and all that kind of thing. So he's got all this other stuff that he's bringing in as as a startup point to promote. Someone like Nora, and I don't want to keep sort of pick on her other than the fact that she is a, very, a, a excellent, outstanding writer and mm-hmm. bi-pop and someone who has uh, you know just about enough popularity to do this. Or Nettie. Nettie Okorafork could maybe do it, right? Maybe.
1: She's but, getting there, with, certainly with all the media work she's doing.
0: The only thing with both for Nettie and um, uh, Nora is that Sanderson ha- is, is working in series. And if you look at his bibliography, you know, he, he works extensively in series. What, he remind, what it reminded me of from my own reading when I was much younger, there's a period in my sort of late teens and 20s when I read a lot of epic fantasy and stuff. A lot. Mm. Stuff that you would roll your eyes at probably. I would. And I read a lot of Alan Dean Foster and I read a lot mm-hmm. of Piers Anthony and Piers Anthony in the back of his books would write notes about what he was doing and what other books you could look forward to from him. Mm-hmm. He was building up a relationship, an expectation. You know, you'll get more books in the Zant series or in the bio of a Space Star series or whatever else it was. And I would sit there and go, yay, I can look forward to that. That is the sort of, if you like, originating version of what we now see here. I suppose if, you know, Nora were to say, "Hey, I've I've I have surprise written a whole new trilogy in my best-selling Hugo Award-winning series, a second series, and I'm I'm going to burn my relationship with my publisher, Orbit, who've been great to me, and instead I'm going to do it myself through a Kickstarter. I reckon she could probably raise millions of dollars, and she's but not then, going. To,
1: she's not about to. Do no, no, no.
0: Well, okay, I don't know if she would or not. I don't think she's likely to. There's no sign of it. But Nora would then also have to then." And this is the other thing. Sanderson, because of his company, and this is something that some's pointed out, he's built up a relationship with all of these people where they know they can depend on him. Even if you set, set aside the writing, I mean, the writing may be a bit... The analogy I would use with, with Sanderson and books is, imagine if you like burgers, he writes a pretty good burger, you can depend on the burger. But yeah. the other thing is, he's already shipped out, bunches of times, tens of thousands of books. If you sign up for, for something of his, you know as one of those people, he will deliver. You will actually get a box of stuff every month if he said you're going to get a box of stuff. So that's a relationship you can lean on and depend on. So when people are taking a risk of putting down $300 for Kickstarter, you know, he's written the books, he's shipped them before, he's produced them to quality, I know what I'm going to get. And they all feel confident. And that's the other factor. He's built confidence. Just like, you know, this is less like your favorite novelist failing to get um a, a hundred million dollar Kickstarter and more like Apple saying we're going to do earpods 4 and you can only get them through our Kickstarter
1: I think that's true but I think there's there's there, there are two things at work here one is the actual product delivery kind of thing that you're talking about the whole the whole system he has set up the other is the fiction itself uh, I think what he's doing and what Nora jimison is not doing is is writing franchises in effect the readers want what they like, and he he knows how to give that to them. He knows how to give that to them, I presume, with enough variation that each new novel adds to the universe, is something different, is something appealing, but doesn't uh, disappoint. In other words, he's giving he's giving his readers what he wants, which is what every best-selling writer ever has probably said, and there's nothing wrong with that. But it's a different kind of writing. I don't think uh, Nora Jemison is likely to have three no. or four secret broken earth books that she's going to spring on us and she make a lot of money doing it and i don't think that brandon sanderson is suddenly going to write some grim metaphysical m john heron kind of space opera as one of his novels he's going to give his readers exactly uh, what they want and he knows that and they love it and uh, more power to yeah. uh, it's it's not something
0: I mean yeah. go ahead yeah but the the tr- the truth of the, the brandon sanderson kickstarter about which you've probably talked more than our listeners are interested is that it's an aberration that's irrelevant? It says nothing about publishing. It well, is not what, a new. It, yeah, it's, it says nothing about publishing. It's not a new path for writers to to look to pursue. You know, for start, it, the general path has been there for a decade. Um, second of all, it's just, it's too complicated you know, to get mm-hmm. to get through easily, and there's a huge, a huge barrier to entry before you can start. So I mean, it, it, it is. It's just one of those things. I mean, I find myself slightly hypnotized by watching. The, the dollars on the Kickstarter go up all the time. Yeah, people, I've, 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 it is the first Kickstarter where I've been able to sit there and watch the money
1: go up in real time. It just you goes tick, 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 like you're watching a, something on a, on a poker machine. It's going tick, 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 tick. I guess I don't understand the argument that it may hurt other writers in some ways. You could make the that's counter awesome. argument. You could make the counter argument that this money, which he's getting directly from his readers, is money which otherwise would come to him from publishers, which would then drain the money away from possible advances for less successful writers. Um, I don't know. I don't know.
0: I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't see this. I mean, you could make the argument that probably he's employing 10 people in Utah who otherwise wouldn't be employed.
1: Exactly. I mean, it goes back and forth, but they aren't writers. That's I mean, my guess is that this is, you're right, it's an aberration. It's an aberration which is only made possible by the existence of technologies like Kickstarter. I suspect, without having any capacity for doing research to find out whether I'm right or wrong, I suspect that by 1935 or so, if Agatha Christie had decided to do this and simply make all of her mysteries subscription only from then on, she probably could have done it very easily. She was more powerful than the publishers.
0: Maybe, but see, here's the thing, right? And this is why one of the interesting footnotes in the whole Sanderson Kickstarter, is he reserves the right at any time after the Kickstarter is closed, to sell these books to a trade publisher and have them come out in trade edition. So when he's finished and he does his 150,000 or 200,000 copies, he can go to Tor and say, you publish the Cosmere series. Three of these books are in the Cosmere series. I know mm-hmm. I've already sucked up most of the audience for it, so we'll do a nice low advance or whatever it might be, and you can have it. You can put them out. And why would he do that? It's because he's continuing to grow the general audience for Sanderson material as much as he can. Um So, I mean, yeah, it's, what does it take? I don't think it takes anything away from publishing other than that I'm very, very, very sure that his New York publishers would love to have been able to publish these books themselves because then they could have made that big cut and and rather than see himself publish. I think there's zero chance that he's going to walk off into the wilderness and stop using a trade publisher. First of all, because there's so much work involved in this and that it's crazy. Uh, And second of all, with all kinds of risk as well, um, and second of all, because you know that's his his core business. He can go back to being Brandon Sanderson, staying up till two o'clock in the morning writing fantasy novels.
1: Well, this is the point that I think uh, hasn't been made often enough. He's talking about four novels, twenty million dollars. He could easily have gotten twenty million dollar advances for four novels. I don't know that you've quite got
0: that. No, I'm not quite convinced. What about five that million much. per novel? uh i i don't know if he, he gets a, i'm not i don't know whether he actually gets a seven-figure advance i'm I sure don't know. that his i mean i know i i would imagine for, well i had a brief i had a brief interaction with beth meacham who who was at tour and has since retired who pointed out that he was a new york time best- bestseller and i said yeah I, I assume that his print runs are First print runs are in the seventy-five to 100,000 copy range. and That's about right, uh, without going into any confidential details. So I'm guessing that his actual advances are half a million dollars a book, three quarters of a million dollars a book. I'm okay. sure he will make more money, and probably quite a lot more money than he would otherwise. Oh, I but think the so. risk, I mean, I began to try to work out the risk in this, Gary, and the risk in this is phenomenal. I mean, here's the first, think about this. He's, he's going to get all this money, I mean, Kickstarter keep like 8% or something, and then he'll yeah. get the rest in about four weeks, say. So there he is in early March of 2022. All of the fulfillment is in 2023. So all of the tax falls in the 2022 tax year for a start. Mm-hmm. So there's the, not just the income tax, but you know when he sells you postage, he has to allow, or he says you want to pay postage. That's not tax exempt. He has the Allow for paying tax on it, so all that tax stuff and getting that on the right year, and how much can you pre, uh, you know, pre actually pay that, you have to set up the postage and delivery, you have to get custom made packaging created, you have to get the the printing and binding done there's artists to employ and get them to do stuff, all of the stuff that goes into these year of Sanderson boxes because you get one book every quarter and then the intervening ones if you pay for this level you get two boxes, one box a month in between of t-shirts and games and whatever else, well someone's got to do the art and the design and the production of all that all those bits have to be brought together and in order to fulfill the, the concept of the Kickstarter and the relationship with the audience, which he's plainly honored, whatever else you say about him, he's honored that, that relationship. The first book has to be shipping in January and received by people in January. The, mm-hmm. the first box in February and so on and so on. Or you've not kept that, you know, you're damaging a your relationship with everybody if you don't do that. Now he's got enough experience, particularly sh- shipping the way of Kings limited edition yeah. to know how to do that. But it's like real complicated and risky and, oh, I mean, I'm sure as well, he's undeniably paying people to do a lot of this, but it ain't easy. And so, no, I, I mean, like I said to a friend of mine yesterday, I, I don't envy him at all. I get why people do. You take a glance at it and you go, uh, there's this guy. He's writing what appears to be pretty run-of-the-mill fantasy novels, epic fantasy novels. And I know that Nora Jemison is a brilliant writer and could do with $32 million. And why isn't... Toshi Onyabuchi getting $32 million and why isn't, you know, John, I mean, John Crowley for crying out loud? Why isn't John Crowley? He's, he's got a limited edition coming out um, next month. You were a little dismissive in email about saying just for collectors, not readers. But there's this guy who's they're, they're going to do the, now the 40th anniversary edition of his classic novel Little Big. And, you know, it's taken 15 years to get it through. No Kickstarter person. You know, every Kickstarter person would have written that off as never happening. You know, uh, it having taken that long. But if you go, if you go, sorry, just slow down because I do rush. If you go to littlebig25.com, you can order a deluxe, beautiful edition of Little Big by John Crowley. Uh, I think it's signed. Uh, I'm not sure. Designed by John Berry and with great art. Blah 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 blah. Fantastic looking thing. If you love that book, which I could never finish. But it is just a collectible. But some example of, like, hey, Brandon Sanderson's going to knock out four books. There'll be four books next year. These guys talk about starting to make one book, you know. So it is its relationship and reputation.
1: Well, I mean, uh, you're absolutely right. That, uh, but there's a difference between a co- one collectible novel from John Crowley who had very little interest in creating a franchise. John Crowley's, his most most ambitious series of books was the Egypt sequence, which actually, as far as I understood, sold fewer and fewer copies as it went on, ended up being finished with Small Beer Press. And they're brilliant books. I did not read all of them. I did love Little Big. I'm very fond of a lot of Crowley's mainstream things, but he's always trying something different. He's not going to write Little Big 2 and Little Big 3 and Little Big 4 and so forth and so on. He's not going to give readers exactly what they expected from him before. And this is actually the kind of writer I tend to be more attracted to. Um, And that doesn't mean a writer is not terribly, terribly popular. Uh, One of the writers who's been cited as somebody else who could do a Brandon Sanders, would he choose to do so is Neil Gaiman. And Neil Gaiman Mm -hmm. has an enormous following, but I think it's an amalgamation of different following. And yet the Ocean at the End of the Lane, for example, is not in any sense a continuation of the Graveyard book, which is not in any sense a continuation of Stardust. He's dealing with very familiar fantasy ideas, but he's not created a single franchise other than Sandman.
0: Yeah, I, I ask myself, now that you've mentioned this, because actually, if you think about it, he kind of he's done, he'd been involved in a couple, right? There's the Good Omens, which is now, you know, you know you know, project, a which has been yeah. the novel, and now two, t- two two seasons of a TV series. You have the loosely, you know, connected series of books that is American Gods and Nancy Boys and the last one of them, which I forget the name, at the moment. So there's those. Uh, so I mean, like, but when I try and imagine Neil, I mean, uh, actually, it's interesting. His partner Amanda Palmer probably is a better example of someone building a tight, tight audience connection just her audience is smaller than brandon sanderson um and also i mean my there's also like as i say it's this combination of who could do it and then who would do it i can't imagine neil gaiman doing any of this not because he necessarily couldn't but first of all because i think he would nod at this he is well remunerated in life and doesn't really Mm. need to have a kickstarter that makes him about the same of money and he's so busy making the sandman tv show and good omens and other project i think there's maybe a remake of Neverwhere out there somewhere. There barely has time to write novels, you know? So uh, he's got enough on his plate uh, without this. And I suspect most of the writers that you would talk to who could do it have more than enough on their plates without wanting to. And if you read, I mean, it does it strike me this way. Every December, like if you were to go to brandonsanderson.com, I think it is, mm. and go to the blog and look at the December post, it's like an industrial business report. I don't doubt you it. Know? You know, I, I this series, I write this much of this. Uh, we did these audiobooks, we did these collectibles, we did this, we did this, we did this, we did this. And you kind of go, oh, the amount of activity, the amount of industry is phenomenal. It's an industrial thing. And, you know, if you're, I keep trying to say, work out in my mind, how does this cost any other creator anything? That's my question, exactly. And the, the first thing is, okay, Brandon Sanderson writes four tour books. Mm-hmm. Writers like Brandon Sanderson, I mean, they used to say, or I heard it said to me, Robert Jordan kept the lights on at Tor, right? Mm -hmm. That's how many books they sold that helped the company function. I'm going to accept that as true without questioning it. Uh, Brandon Sanderson, by writing the conclusion to The Wheel of Time, inherited a chunk of that audience. I am sure not publishing four novels by Brandon Sanderson is not something they're delighted about because they would have made quite a lot of money. But Brandon Sanderson has delivered everything else to them. They're still making the same amount of money so mm-hmm. He's not take, he's not taking money out of the publishing uh, ecosystem to make this happen. This happens outside the publishing ecosystem. And it's a one-shot. That's the other thing. I honestly would be shocked. Well, okay, I was surprised at this, but I'm not surprised to look back
1: at it. I don't know how often he could do it again. I doubt that he could do it again, and I don't know that he would necessarily want to, but um, but he could. I mean, basically what you're saying is the infrastructure is in place. Uh, he's yeah. you know, he's he, People people confuse Art and commerce, I suppose, and they always have. But by and large, he's got a corporation going which delivers the product yeah. that its consumers want and delivers it reliably. And I'm sure everything will be delivered reliably here. That is not a product that some of us think about when we think about quote unquote literature in cap- with a capital L. Um, And and, and I would include James Patterson. I've I've read a couple of Patterson. Uh, I don't think he writes very well, but he writes very accessibly and and very predictably. And uh, for that matter, I am mildly curious as to what Dolly Parton's album is like to go with this novel, but I have no interest. But my point is that's a separate thing from what Crowley is doing. I think uh, Neil Gaiman is somewhere in between. He's more successful than... Uh, than, than most writers, but he's also experimenting. He's trying different things. And if he gets back to write, writing novels, it'll be The Ocean at the End of the Lane was, for my mind, the riskiest novel he had written, and it was at the height of his popularity. Uh, and I, I know from having dealt with him and audiences at the same time, that early on, when he was uh, writing different kinds of novels, the Sandman audience, the guys who would show up in, in, in Neil Gaiman outfits... Uh, black leather jacket and black jeans, which they order from Australia. As a matter of fact, they were disappointed that he was doing anything besides Sandman. So there's a certain amount of, um, there's a certain amount of uh, risk-taking there. Uh, there's the other question which comes up again and again, um, mostly in terms of media franchises, and that is fan service. Are you doing this to promote your fans? Are you doing this to satisfy your fans? Are you writing what you know your fans will like? And there's one ad, one point of view says that is a horrible artistic sin. You are violating your godly oath as an artist and simply giving the audience what it wants. And there's another argument that said, what else are artists supposed to? Do?
0: <laughs> well, see, I'd say you have to decide if you want to be Neil Young or Britney Spears, right? Well, that's
1: that's one way of looking at it.
0: You know, and I mean, what what is the the sensible response to the Brandon Sanderson Kickstarter other than to look at it in vague kind of surprise yeah. and wonder? I think it's this: if you're not someone who likes the Brandon Sanderson universe oeuvre, you know what? Go out and buy a book yourself by somebody who you think you who you like and who you think isn't read enough, and give it to someone else as a gift. Go, recommend a book that you've read by somebody that you loved, that you think people should be aware of. I know, for for fact, because we touched on it, that you will mention in this podcast before we're done, Niveau Niveau is not in a position to run, I don't believe, a Brandon Sanderson Kickstarter, but her novel from 2021, mm-hmm. uh, The Beautiful and the Sublime?
1: The, was no, the chosen, and the chosen and the Beautiful.
0: Yeah, is, is spectacularly wonderful. Um, You know, Tochi Onyabuchi's... Riot Baby, also not selling the way Brandon Sanderson does, fantastic. I would recommend it to anybody. And many, I mean, you know, Katie Cardi- Martin books, whatever else. Mm-hmm. I reckon that's the response. Just double down on the stuff you care about, support it, recommend it to people you know who might read it. I think that's, uh, otherwise, I think
1: you're just wasting your energy. I think being appalled about it is is, is, is kind of a cottage industry on social media and, and it's, it's the latest thing to be appalled about. In my sense, it's does, it doesn't affect any of us um, in any significant way at all. And we yeah. are, probably ought to stop talking about it before people... Well, it has been three of quarters heart. of the
0: podcast now, hasn't it? I know. I mean, just as you know, listeners, in the middle of the week, I said, Gary, a list of possible topics. I said, I want structure in the episode. No rambling. And he went, I don't care about any of those stupid topics. They're a waste of time. And then he I said, didn't "Later, quite oh, I not say
1: that." And I, in fact, emailed you saying I was not that cranky. Um, I know, I know, that, but still. And we have now spent a big chunk of time talking about something for, for, the, for the core one, of our messages. One of, to- one of those topics you sent to me was, in fact, quite relevant to what we've been talking about for the last half hour, and that was the topic yeah. of reader expectations. You'd, you'd sent yes. an excellent article. Um, the uh, uh, It had to do. Can you read without expectation? Uh, which Ooh. is an interesting question by itself. The thing is that reading with expectations is exactly what Branderson's, Sanderson's career—Branderson. He should do that. He could be like Benifer Branderson, um, yeah. Branderson's career um, is based on fulfilling expectation. If you read a—this if, if you this goes back before that. If you read the Robert Jordan, if you read The Wheel of Time, every subsequent Wheel of Time novel had to deliver on what you expected. Your expectations sure. were not to be surprised, were not to have things... Re- One of the things that made The Song of Ice and Fire controversial, if we can remember way back to when the novels started coming out, was that he was regu- regularly killing off characters who apparently were main characters early in the series. He was reversing expectations. But that reversal of expectations became part of the expectations of The Song of Ice and Fire.
0: And you could also argue the reason for the dissatisfaction with the television show once it went past what he had written was it
1: wasn't delivering on the expectations for what he would have done. Exactly. Um, And uh, and I I tend to feel that way myself. Uh, So there's one, and and I I mentioned Agatha Christie earlier. Uh, Agatha Christie is like working a crossword puzzle. You want your expectations Mm -hmm. satisfied. When she, early in her career, even slightly varied from the formula. Um, Yeah. Murder of Roger Ackroyd when the narrator turns out to be the murderer, for example. That's cheating, according to her rules. She had outrage about that. When she killed off Hercule Poirot at the end of her career, it was outrage. But for 50-year career in between, every novel pretty much satisfied the expectations of the readers. Uh, they were not going to be surprised by anything. That's so, true. So that's one extreme. The one extreme is 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 wanting your expectations fulfilled. And I read like that too. I will read, if I read a Carl Hiaasen novel, very funny novels about uh, politics and environmental depredation in South Florida, I want it to be very funny. For that matter, in our field, um, uh, one of the novels that uh, is, is coming out now, if it's not just out, uh, by somebody we've talked about before, Saad Hussein's Kandu Wakes Up. I've read enough by Saad Hussein to want it to be funny and inventive, and sort of crazed, and it is, Um, but I don't expect him to do the same thing over and over again for this career. Now, the opposite extreme, okay, you wanted, okay, the opposite extreme is reading a novel where you have nothing going, no no real preconceptions at all. Uh, You don't have a blurb. That happens rarely to a reviewer these days. I've mentioned before on the podcast, the first time, the most dramatic time it happened to me was when I got an, um, an unmarked arc, an advanced reading copy of Karen Lord's first novel from Small Beer Press. It had no text on it whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I didn't know who Karen Lord was. I'd never heard of Redemption and Indigo. The only slight expectation was Small Beer is, you know, it's, it's Gavin Grant and Kelly Link. They they have good taste, so I figured it's worth it. Outside of that, I didn't know what to expect. I was kind of blown away. It was a very impressive novel. The closest that's happened in the last two years was, again, I think it was Heshet India or somebody who sent me a completely unmarked advanced reading copy of uh, Gautam Bhatia's first novel. Uh, the Wall. And, yes, The Wall. And I didn't know what it was going to be at all. Uh, I figured since it was published in India, it might have something to do with Indian society. It turned out it really didn't. It was a completely self-contained fantasy. Very interesting, very intriguing, and, and very kind of exhilarating because when you're reading a novel like that, you don't have any sense when you're writing a review of it, if you're completely off the wall, if you're, if you're completely out there and nobody else thinks what you think of of the novel. But by the time I read yeah. Bach's second novel, I pretty much knew what to expect. I expected a lot of legal stuff, which I wouldn't have expected in the fantasy. Almost everything else is somewhere in between. Novels that you don't come into without any expectations and novels where you know exactly what uh, to expect.
0: Well, I think it's true that any career is based on balancing expectations. Mm-hmm. Molly Templeton's article on Tor.com really is about how when you approach a work, particularly by a known creator, you bring in expectations.
1: Mm-hmm. You know,
0: So if you have read The *Belgariad* by David Eddings, by the time you've got to the end of Enchanter's Endgame and you pick up the next book of something, you're expecting epic fantasy of a particular type, a particular character if you get something different. Maybe you're happy, maybe you're not, but you're thrown. Um, Mm -hmm. If you read um, Star Tired Rising by David Brin, and then you find existence, will you be happy? If you read We See Things Differently, or no, if you read the Jane Austen uh, Book Club by Karen J. Fowler, Mm -hmm. and you read it and you enjoy it, and then you pick up We See Things Differently, which is a quite different sort of book, Are you happy? Were you able to shake off your feeling that it was going to be the kind of book you thought it was going to be? It's a real challenge in order to be fair to a text. Uh, I think that you and I occasionally are quite privileged in a way that we don't understand, or unfortunate maybe. Even if you've never heard of an author, even if you don't know anything about it, when you pick up a published book, from the moment you pick it up, it's an exercise by the publisher to try and control your expectations. It has a particular title, it has a particular cover art. It has particular blurbs, descriptions. They're trying to lead you into seeing this as this kind of thing. It's one of the reasons, as much as some people don't like it, you quite often get, you know, this book is like X and Y, you know, oh, this, people, you know this book is like, you know, die hard meets the the, 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 the last unicorn. And you go, right. die hard meets the last unicorn. I'd read the hell out of that. right so you would read the hell out of that. But still, um, huh, interesting idea. But still. So, that gives you some kind of expectation management when you know i mean sometimes we get sent manuscripts uh, digitally mm-hmm. or otherwise or it's, it's it's a pile of paper it's all you know uh times roman 12 point that you don't you don't know who the author is or even if you know who the author is you've got nothing other than the title you know right there was there, there would have been a day where someone at Alan and Unwin got a pile of paper with *The Summer Tree* by Guy Gavriel Kay on the cover, and would have no idea. And then, at some point, they got—think about it. I mean, with, with Guy's great, uh, great example, because he has a new book coming out this year. Uh-huh. You have—you've you, had the Art Tapestry* come out and be successful, so you think, okay, I know this guy; he writes series fantasy in a Tolkien-esque kind of influenced universe, all that kind of thing. That's great. And then he gives you Togana. Which is a completely different thing. Admittedly, cons- much more consistent with what comes later, but nonetheless, right. completely different. That's an expectations issue, you know. Uh, and then your your real co- your, your real question with, you know, I read Tagana, and I know it's a classic. And we'll just stop and say if you have not read Tagana, yeah, you by know, you all ha- I means stop the podcast now and come back. Um, but the new one, all the si- all the war- seas in the world, all the season, the world. Was, yeah, all seas in the world, um, will be. In the same space-ish as that and certainly
1: in the same space as you know, a Rose and Rose, and which and... the previous novel set in his, his version of yeah, Europe. Yeah. and there, there are certain things we know we know to expect we know he's going to make up names for recognizable countries and cities and families and so forth and so on we expect that there will be what he calls a quarter turn to fantasy in every one of his novels and this leads to another set of expectations um there you could actually get through most of most Guy K's novels without having to deal much with the fantasy. Uh, mm-hmm. The fantasy is there, but it's never it, 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 it never turns into massive epic Tolkien-esque fantasy. It's always within the context of a historical novel. My expectation, and and, and uh, all the seas of the world is on my pile to read now, or in my chip to mm-hmm. read again, um, I'm going to be expecting some element of fantasy in it. And will I be disappointed if I don't see it? Maybe I won't notice. One of the other books that's coming out this spring, and I think our friend Ian Mond is looking forward to this, and may have it, is Karen Joy Fowler's novel *Booth*. Now, she wrote a short story about uh, the Booth family ten years ago it was in her latest collection of short mm-hmm. stories. Um, it's mostly historical, as far as I can tell. *Booth* is purely a historical novel about the family. Are people going to be disappointed that it's not? a kind of strange, it doesn't have any science fiction elements in it, it doesn't have any fantasy elements in it? Is it okay for her to do this? And my sense is, the answer is, if you can get away with it. And by if you can get away with it, by the time you finish the novel, you're not even thinking about whether there was anything fantastic. Then then you've succeeded. I can
0: say of Booth, there's an interview with Karen in Today's Guardian, uh-huh. where she talks about it. And does talk about it as a historical, and about wanting to examine the difference in worldviews between Bruce himself, who was a known white supremacist apparently, yes. and those of his family, and how they felt about it. And I know that James Bradley of the of the podcast family wow. has read the book and said it was terrific. And I'm waiting for my coffee to copy to arrive. And I'm sure you're right. I'm very sure Ian will be looking forward to it as well. And the thing that Karen has going for her now, at this stage in her career, and Karen is seventy-two and has been writing for a long time, well, is that if you read Karen, you're not expecting it to be like the previous book. Exactly. If you if you read, and we will talk to her later in the year, if you read Spear or Hild by uh, Nicola Griffith, you're not expecting them to be alike. You're expecting them to be Nic- Nicola Griffith stories, and that does happen. Someone mm-hmm. becomes enough of a brand. In and of themselves in your reading life elizabeth hand is a fantastic mm-hmm. i don't expect elizabeth hand books to, or stories to be anything other than elizabeth hand books or stories now the, the challenge there is sometimes you can't be a brandon Sand- sanderson kickstarter if you also want to be that kind of pr- kind of creator it's just a different game
1: i, I think that's true and I, I think that for that matter we've got any number of favoured writers who have never made uh, any kind of uh, financial succession and, and refused to do have made they've made money. Uh, mm-hmm. There are some of our favorite writers, a couple of whom we've mentioned already on the podcast, who have never actually earned out in advance according to what they do. They have not failed to make money from the books, but they're not about to, uh, to return to their biggest hits. I mean, as I, you mentioned, Little Big. I, I Crowley, I'm sure, is very, very happy to have this gorgeous edition of Little Big coming mm-hmm. out. I don't think he's at all interested in revisiting that world, Um, nor should he be. No. Um, Well, I I think think if he was going
0: to, he would have visited time.
1: He he would have by now. But another writer who comes to mind, another interesting, one of the most interesting novels the last couple of years was M. John Harrison's The Sunken Land Begins to Rise Again. Uh, Somebody who had read Vericonium 30 years ago, or somebody who had read uh, his, his sort of weirdly intellectual space operas, would be very puzzled by this book because there's nothing really very overtly science fictional in it at all. It's mysterious. It's a near-future England, which is sort of uh, disintegrating in various ways. But it's not in any way a, a, a slam-bang story like his novel Light. I don't think he's trying to... Uh, now, now, he, again, has a reputation as a literary writer, in the same way Karen Joy Fowler does. And to some extent, people who read them know that they're going to see something. They're going to see a unique voice and a unique take on something, but you don't know that it'll be like anything you've read by them before. No Ted Chang story is like any other Ted Chang story.
0: No, it's true. Some some writers are like that. And, you know, you have to sort of, when you feel bad when I don't have a $32 million Kickstarter, you have to kind of balance it against that. So, have you read anything... We're we're getting, honestly, towards the latter latter stages of the episode, Gary.
1: Have you read anything of interest? I'm reading several things of interest, and this could be a topic for a separate discussion, uh, although it's a discussion we've had before. I started reading Nevo's The Siren Queen, which is set in a kind of alternate... It's it's not really alternate. It's it's set in um, Golden Age Hollywood, 1940s Hollywood. But... Here's the thing that's interesting about it. Uh, unlike her, her uh, The Chosen and the Beautiful, in which every character practically was a recognizable character from The Great Gatsby, she wrote that novel within the webbing of The Great Gatsby. This one has no historical figures in it at all. There are people sure. we might be able to connect to actual historical figures, but you're writing a historical novel about... Hollywood, it doesn't mention Goldwyn, it doesn't mention Louis B. Mayer, it doesn't mention Clark Gable, it doesn't mention any names. Everything is completely made up, which is an interesting strategy. Um, It used to be the traditional way of writing about Hollywood. The the, the novel which it's reminding me most of right now is, of all things, is a novel by Nathaniel West from 1939 called The Day of the Locust, which was one of the first big Hollywood novels. Uh, Again, he made up everything out of scratch. Point of uh, point of trivia, which most people don't know, one of the minor characters in um, The Day of the Locust is named Homer Simpson. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and Matt Groening, in fact, had read Day of the Locust and has said in interviews that that's where his name came from, plus the fact that his father's name was... But anyway... So does that so, mean The Day of the Locust is part of the Simpsons universe? Yes, I think it is. I think it really is. Or maybe <laughs> The Simpsons is part of the day... The Day of the Locust is a bizarre novel that ends with this gigantic riot... And it deals with an artist who wants to paint this apocalyptic landscape called the Burning of Los Angeles or something. It's a, I haven't read it in years, but it's one that would fit right in with modern fantasy. Um, but the, the thing that interests me is when you're writing a kind of historical novel and making up all the names, uh, that's one strategy. Um, and as we mentioned, that the Guy Gabriel K does this, he doesn't yes. give you any historical names at all. Um, and yet, the other thing I've been reading, we mentioned John Crowley is *Flint and Mirror*, who, which is a, a novel expanded from a novella. I think he had published in Gardner was *Book of Magic*. I think um, maybe, yeah, yeah, that sounds right. And well, whatever. It's 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 clearly a fantasy. It deals with uh, uh, 16th century uh, with Elizabethan England and um, the English basically takeover of Ireland. Every character in it is historical it 's a flat out historical story without but with some invented characters, some characters drawn from mythology, but essentially he 's tried to make up as little as possible that 's an interesting pair of strategies, one writing yeah. historical fantasy about historical figures, um, the other writing historical fantasy, and making up all the characters as you go along
0: yeah
1: i don 't know what the meaning of that is, but it, but it's the thing
0: uh, b- book I read that ties into that. I'll come to in a second because the book does tie in very much, mm-hmm. but I wanted to mention this week, the latest issue of locust came out mm-hmm. and in it, I, there was an interview with Kelly Barnhill, which is d- delightful, great, in, wonderful interview. Mm-hmm. And I felt very warmly about it because I get name checked and Kelly mm-hmm. talks about reading writing a book that I'm very eager to read that you have read. I have it when women were dragons, which is coming out in
1: May, and you were quite complimentary to this somewhat wacky sounding book. It's it's not wacky. It, it's a, it's a wacky idea, and the central idea. I went into it. This is what talk about expectations. I had read some Kelly Barnhill short fiction. I think she's written some young adult fiction, which I've not read. She's um, a world fancy word for a. Right, and, and 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 so I was expecting it to be well written, but I thought, okay, this is a six hundred thousand American women turn into dragons sometimes in the mid nineteen fifties. What it turns out to be is an almost Dickensian novel of this childhood uh, of and, and and young adulthood and and of, of this woman whose uh, whose favorite aunt is one of the people that turns into dragons, and it's set in a really it, it's a completely bizarre kind of universe because there are dragons that have gone off somewhere but again she name tricks there Nixon is in it the McCarthy hearings are in it the the history that she's writing is a, is a legitimate alternate history um, and it's it turns out to be a much richer and sadder novel than I expected it to be well, when women are angry dragons, all... it sounds like a joke, but it's uh, it's not. Well,
0: I mean, the premise that she mentions in the interview was literally that one day in the middle of the 1950s, a whole bunch of women are turned into dragons, mm-hmm. and then some, the story follows. But, but from your,
1: your description, it's an angry book. It is. It is. It's a book that makes you angry. And one of the things we can also talk about is an angry book, one that makes you feel blasted or, 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 or you're back like this, like, okay, I can't deal with this. Or does it make you feel the anger? And there are a couple of scenes in it, and I've talked to some, I've talked to my, my partner, my partner Dale, and some other women about this. And it's a very ordinary scene. The young girl is a brilliant mathematician. She doesn't have to study. Her mother was a brilliant mathematician, but was never even allowed to go to college. And there's, there's a scene where she's called into the principal's office at her school, and it turns out that they have to stop posting the scores on the algebra quizzes or on the math because she's always getting the top score. And the principal says to her, you you force us to stop posting these scores. And the boys in class see you loafing. They see you not paying any attention at all. And yet you always get the top scores. How can you be so inconsiderate as to do that to the boys in class? And it turns out that has happened to women I know. I'm sure it's, it's, it's totally. It's, but, but but reading the scene the way Barnhill sets it up, you feel as furious as she does. I'm sure, and th- that's what I mean about an angry book. An angry book that's successful makes the reader angry. Yes, that sounds and like
0: I, a book that we would encourage people to pre-order. I would,
1: I would I would encourage people to pre-order the book, and I would encourage people who, who think it's just going to be a lark about uh, dragons, uh, to to look at it as the life of a brilliant young girl. Being raised in the fifties and sixties, and dealing with all the ways that women's lives mm-hmm. are made small—that's essentially what the Dragon Rebellion is. I'm not giving away a plot thing there, but but essentially, the entire society is meant to keep women in a kind of chrysalis position, and the the, the dragon eruption was was kind of a reaction to that. Mm-hmm. But the rest the, the it rest sounds like we should get Kelly Barnhill on the podcast later. Here, park the year. I could be completely wrong about everything I'm
0: saying too. So. I don't know i think you know it gels with the interview i too read an angry historical fantasy novel that i just finished in the last couple of days Mm -hmm. that i would strongly recommend to readers out in the world a couple of years ago a book came out called the poppy war by rf quang oh yes it was very successful there were two sequels i believe world went crazy. Being me, and it being the first volume in a fantasy series, I did not pick it up. Mm -hmm. But this coming August, Harper Voyager are going to be releasing uh, Rebecca Crank's fourth book, a book called Babel or The Necessity of Violence, An Arcane History of the Oxford Translators' Revolution. It's set uh, in in, at, or around Oxford University primarily in the 1830s. The primary sideways fantasy shift in it is that the world is subtly powered by magic. The magic is derived from the tension between differing meanings of words in different languages. What you do is you take a a word that means one thing, a word that's slightly at odds but means something similar in another language. They're inscribed onto a kind of silver, which then exudes a magical force so that you could make people healthy uh, in this world because it's the British Empire at the height of its power in the 1830s. Hmm. It's driving much of the British Empire. Uh, bridges are being held up by it, uh, vehicles move more smoothly, steam works better, you make more money, all this other kind of stuff, profligately so. The protagonist is a young Cantonese uh, boy who's been uh, orphaned at the beginning of the book by uh, his mother's died of cholera, and he's whisked off by a man who comes and heals he him with one of these silver bars, takes him back to uh, England, where he will be valued because he has a native level understanding of Cantonese, and yeah. so he's able to offer a, an innate meaning to, to, to put into this. But it takes it, it quickly. Get goes from him being a, I think, it's about a ten-year-old boy to him going to Oxford and his initial experiences where he meets other uh, uh, young scholars who have come from elsewhere in the world, two women and a young man from India. It shows you nakedly, without lecturing you the the naked racism and sexism that they, these char- characters encounter uh it foregrounds it without making heavy-handed it talks about the price of empire in a really compelling way whilst the story always rem- remains very readable and entertaining um the characters are compelling it's it's a really terrific book i really liked it uh if i make it sound heavy-handed it's not but it's angry as well it's very hard not to look at these protagonists and the things they're experiencing you know there's the I mean, there's this honeymoon period in the book when mm-hmm. they when their first years at babel college at oxford babel college being the college of translators which has garnered much of the wealth from around the world to itself as well uh-huh. because it's the source of these source silver of yeah. so they're at babel college they're overseeing translation they're working as first-year students and it's all sunny wonderful things because even though they come from diverse backgrounds they're, they've got all of the resources of the college, but they come up against things. You know, the girls can't take books out of the Bodleian by themselves because they're women. You know, mm-hmm. uh, they can go to the school, the, the the one of the university parties, but they have to work as servers before they're allowed to actually attend. Because of course they would, because they're ah. just you know this kind of thing. And it's a great book. The, um, the title kind of if you like gives it away: "Babel or the Necessity of Violence." And yeah, you know, it is. It's about translation. Uh, Re- Rebecca, it sounds like, has worked as a translator. It's it gives you a real sense of Oxford. She draws the world wonderfully. She's studied at Oxford and has spoken
1: of her love of Oxford. So, you know, really terrific book. I really, really recommend it. It also sounds books. like one of these books, that is, 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 which we've seen more and more lately, although... This is usually in the background of a novel, which explores the relationship between language and reality to some extent. If magic is made by, by the interactions of words, which when you think about it, is exactly what magic is made from, um, uh, then, then the whole translating thing becomes a, a kind of fascination. And I, I, I love books like that. I mean, I'm kind of a sucker for them. There's a, um, one of the novels which I, is, is, which I enjoyed. And I've reviewed also, which I think is already out now, is Ping Shepard's The Cartographer, which is based on a simple uh, kind of conceit, which is not made up by Ping Shepard at all. And that is in the Gary, early twentieth. 20th... Pung. Pung, really? Pung. I'm glad that you corrected me in that. My apologies. Uh, can can I just say,
0: before you feel, feel, feel badly about it, Pung corrected me to my face because ah. I made the mistake. We were, we were out at dinner and she was like, no. And I felt about this tall. Mm. Sorry, for for listeners, that's like really not very tall.
1: But the uh, conceit is that early road maps in the United States frequently would create phantom towns that were Mm -hmm. only there as traps for plagiarism. In other words, you print a map, uh, somebody else would reprint your map and, and make money off of it. And if they included this phantom village that you had put on your map, that was proof that they had plagiarized your map and you could sue them. This actually happened. It's simply based on uh, the whole novel is complicated and becomes a a fantasy adventure in all sorts of ways, but it's a fantasy adventure in which maps become reality. And one of these phantom things that was invented solely for the sake of a map turns out to be an actual place. And it turns out to be kind of a portal. And then the the rest of the fantasy. But the, but the idea is still that, you know, it's, it's an area that I've, Heard called bibliophantasy, where a story takes place within the context of a printed work or a printed document or something along those lines. Um, like the air affair. Uh, like, like the air affair. The air affair actually takes place inside other novels. Yeah, um, which is by Jasper Ford for listeners. Exactly. For that matter, uh, for that matter, what we've been uh, looking at with Alex Harrow's uh, A Spindle Splendor mm. and A Mirror Mended, Stories that take place within other fairy tales and within different iterations of different fairy tales, um, and it's it's kind of it, it's interesting that I thought the term I thought the term bibliofantasy was in common usage. I tried to look it up, and it's not. It turns out the word appears in the Encyclopedia of Fantasy, but it's not an entry. It just appears randomly in in some other entry. So so I, I, we we can now claim to to have sort of nailed down that term on this podcast. Popularized it. Fantasy- <laughs> the, the classic, the classic, just for people who want to be pedantic about it, the classic is probably uh, John Myers Myers Silverlock, which is about mm-hmm. the victim of, a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a, a ship, shipwreck who finds himself in a land populated by figures from American literature, from folklore, from mythology and so forth and so on. And he's, he's, he's in the world of books, in effect. Yeah. So I'm currently reading, as I say, Spear by Nicola mm-hmm. Griffith in preparation for our
0: discussion with Nicola in a couple of weeks or so. I think not the next episode, maybe the one after that or mm-hmm. maybe early April that will come out, uh, which I'm looking forward to. Nicola is wonderful to talk to. Um, and we'll have to look to see what else. I, I have two things about shipping this week. Ah. Every now and again, my, my good friend Bill Schaefer is kind enough to send me complimentary copies of Subterranean Books. But I, I must say, there appears to be a glitch in the system because he sent me very generously, and I want to stress that I'm very, very grateful. Uh, the Best of Lucia Shepard, Volume Two. Mm-hmm. But they sent me four copies of the Best of Lucia Shepard, Volume Two. Oh, which. it's this big, Gary! It's it, like like I'm surrounded by Lucia Shepard. I have oh, it's almost artist. more Lucia, It's almost more Lucia Shepard than I was surrounded by when I was actually surrounded by Lucia Shepard. And this is this is um, actually only Volume Two. Yes, a volume. Well, I have volume one. Volume is lovely. I have volume one is well. lovely. Yeah, um, and also I got a shipping notice this week, Gary. Oh,
1: really? I got a shipping
0: notice uh, from uh, Discon, the 2021 World Science Fiction Convention, to tell me that they have finally shipped my Hugo Award, Gary, and it should arrive next Friday with a little bit of luck. Really, Uh, A mere three months after the the ceremony, I will finally get to feel like it
1: happened. (laughs) I'm looking forward to it very much. I I, I was not going to ask you about it because mine, of course, came years ago, it seems. Um, From FedEx, by the way. They they, they are not mail. It was very, very well packaged, so I'm sure it will arrive in good shape. But congratulations. It's uh, it's something which uh, seems like, uh, if, if your reaction is like mine, opening it, I wanted to go down in the lobby of my building and open it in front of people. uh, But there wasn't any way to do that. But it feels like getting it all over again because you've never even held this.
0: I haven't held it. I haven't seen it other than in photos. I wasn't at the ceremony. To be really honest, it kind of feels like it sort of didn't happen. So I'm very excited. It's a wonderful prompt to nominate for the Hugo Awards for 2022, Gary. It is. It's a wonderful prompt Uh, to nominate because it arrives at just about the right time to say you could support them. If you enjoy the Cooch Street podcast and have been listening mm-hmm. to it, know these many hours, you could support it for the, um, the
1: Hugo Awards, should you wish to. Um, as you have done, and which we are both, I know, genuinely grateful for. Two pieces of advice. One is when it arrives, there is some assembly required, which is good. Uh, because the base comes in its own separate box. So you have to screw it onto the base which is what you want to do because you never pick it up. This is something that's been said in Hugo Awards, I understand, for the last 50 years. Yeah, never never pick it up by the base. By the rocket. <laughs> and and you mean because it, it looks as though you're masturbating, Gary? Well, it's, well, there's that. Second thing is don't drop the base, especially don't drop it on your foot, but don't drop it at all. The base will go through your floor. <laughs> the base is essentially, it's a very disturbing... Yes, solid marble. Yes, I look forward to it. All right,
0: uh, I might do an on, unboxing on, on video or something. I don't. have I should have thought of that. Oh, well, do they're it. Everyone really go. Everyone eh. go. Eh. But in the meantime, they've got many book book recommendations, pre-orders to do, Ningvo books to get, Kelly Barnhill books to get, um, R.F. Quang books to get. So they're 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 armed and ready. And hopefully anyone who was feeling a sense of disruption or ennui over the fact that Brandon Sanderson was making piles of money in the
1: Midwest can kind of – is Utah in the Midwest? Utah is not in the Midwest. It's mountain Where is time, it? I believe. One of it's, those joints. One it, of those places it, it, in – flyover state. Yeah.
0: I didn't say that. Sorry. Um, anyway, one of... even though life might be good in Salt Lake City, it can be good elsewhere. And hopefully people are writing and creating, and we will we will
1: talk about it again. Absolutely. Until we come back then, with or without a guest the next time around, we'll figure that out. This has been the Coot Street Podcast. Worst luck for you guys, really, if there's a good podcast (laughs) out there.